0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Impossible Podcast. On today's show, I've got my good friend, author, and investor, John Durant of Wild Ventures. Uh, You might know him from his book a few years back called The Paleo Manifesto. Wild Ventures is his most recent focus. They make a bunch of investments in the health food, paleo, fitness Space and some of the companies they invested in are some of my favorite companies Uh, Thrive Market, Exo Protein Bars. Beekeepers Naturals, Greatest.com, and Primal Kitchen, which was recently acquired by Kraft Foods. So if you guys know Mark Sisson and Primal Kitchen, that was a huge exit recently. And so we had a great conversation here talking about how he got into the paleo slash fitness space and how he structured his business and his fund and his lifestyle in a different way than most other funds do. John is one of my favorite people to talk to, and he's on my very short list of people I'm petitioning to tweet more because I like the way he thinks. But I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of it. But before we get into today's interview, there's a few things I need to tell you about. First of all, if you guys want to start off the new year right, go head on over to impossiblegear.com pick up an impossible shirt and make sure that you have something on your impossible list to do in the next month. Then wear your impossible shirt and go do the thing. Don't keep telling yourself that it's going to be someday, sometime, later this year, whenever. Go do it now. Go get your impossible shirt, wear it, and then go do the thing you've been talking about. It's the best way To remind yourself on a daily basis to push your limits and do something impossible, you can pick it up at impossiblegear.com. Just check them out. We've got a bunch of new stuff coming up this year. Also, check out movewellapp.com, 10-minute mobility routines to help you get stronger, get faster, and start moving well. If you want to become a better athlete, you want to become just more pain-free in general, check it out. It's a free app to download, and we're going to be launching a web app here soon. Also, I have some news that I kind of let slip in this interview. So if you guys listen all the way through, you'll hear a little bit of some news that I'll be announcing here pretty soon. But in the meantime, check out movewellapp.com and download the app today. All right, that's it. We're keeping things short. Let's go ahead and get into my interview with author and investor, John Durant. All right, guys. I'm here with John Durant, founder of Wild Ventures and author of the Paleo Manifesto. John, thanks for coming on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. So I've known you for what, the last three, four, or five years, something like that. Let's go ahead and give people a little bit of your background, how you got started with writing, and then we can get into some of the cool stuff that you're up to now.
1: Yeah. So if I really go all the way back, I became obsessed with evolutionary psychology in my senior year in high school. Ended up studying it a little bit in college and realized it was a powerful approach. Got into paleo in 2006, working a desk job in New York and just energy spiking and crashing, put on some weight, whatever. Realized it was through Art Devaney, read his essay. He was an early paleo figure. Totally clicked with me, having taken an evolutionary approach before. I was like, oh yeah, this is for any species, you would look at what it does in the wild and what, what it's adapted to as a starting point for what's probably healthy today. And it, it doesn't give you every answer. It doesn't mean new stuff can't be good and doesn't mean life in the wild was perfect. But it's in terms of like 80-20 stuff, it's a good place to start. Yeah. It was a hobby, side hobby for a few years. Started a meetup group. It was the first paleo meetup group in New York. It was like five years before paleo was even like normally like aware oh six it was it was very early i mean cordain had his books out or book out but and 2011 2012 is like the time where it started to. 2010 early 2010 is when i was in a featured in a new york times style section piece and that was the highest profile media that paleo had gotten to date and then there was a ton of media over the next couple of years where paleo was ascendant, it had gone in waves. I mean, the concept in different iterations, you go back to like the seventies and there, there's some books that people have written about it, but with the rise of the internet and the rise of CrossFit, I would say those two things helped cement it into a community to make it more sustainable and really flesh it out. And and 2006 is when Sisson started Mark's Daily Apple. He was also inspired by Art Devaney. So it, it was a small crew then. And, you know, CrossFit had started and Rob Wolf, who had studied under Lauren Cordain, opened one of the earliest CrossFit affiliates and he was doing nutrition certs for CrossFit. So all those sort of things were happening kind of around that time. I start the meetup group in 2009. And an acquaintance of mine came, it was like a dozen dudes and one vegan girl in my Manhattan apartment. And she was only there because she was romantically involved with one of the other guys. And uh, we just had a potluck dinner. I had a freezer chest. I had bought a freezer chest because Michael Pollan had recommended it in one of his books, I think, Food Rules. And this acquaintance after the dinner said, hey, I'm a freelance journalist. This was weird and cool. Uh, how about a, I pitch a one page lifestyle piece into GQ or something? Would you want to do it? And I said, sure, let's see what happens. He pitched it to the New York Times. They initially said no. Uh, they came back a month later and said, we want you to write the piece. You know, probably they saw things bubbling up yeah. and were like, oh, this is actually a trend that's happening. Um, he wrote the piece and it came out in early 2010. That led to an appearance on Colbert, yeah. which was a lot of fun. And, you know, actually, there's a funny dynamic when you talk paleo stuff because the media wants page views and clicks. They like to sensationalize things. And what ends up happening is they'll sort of subtly be like, are you sure you should be wearing a shirt right now? Why are your shoes on? Shouldn't you be eating raw meat straight off the bone? Wink, wink. They sort of know what they want to see. They have like a stereotype in their head and they encourage people who are...
0: Well, it's a show, so they're trying to make you into a show.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I can have a sophisticated conversation about evolutionary biology for two hours, and then what comes out the other end is this, like, silly caricature. So, at the beginning, did you have, like, the long hair and the beard? Because that was, like, the thing. That was the thing. Uh, Initially, they're like, oh, like, paleo-Jesus. I mean, yeah, the producer of Colbert told me on, like, a pre-screen call, don't get a haircut before the show, (laughs) because this is part of the shtick. But Uncle Bear, the dynamic was reversed. Like he was the wacky crazy one. And I got to be reasonable in contrast. And that made a huge difference in how the ideas came across. It was framed totally differently. You know, I could laugh at it. Yeah, there's some silly stuff, there's some goofy stuff, but here's why it broadly makes sense. And people are like, Yeah. It was sort of a powerful example of how something is framed in the media can really make people interpret it in a different way. Uh so that happened. Was able to get a book deal through some of the media stuff. Wrote the book, Paleo Manifesto came out in 2013. I mean, I can jump into the venture stuff and.
0: Yeah, yeah. Paleo Manifesto was 2013. Yep. That was like the thing for a year or two years. Yep. And then you started
1: getting into venture stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually starting to get into venture stuff before Paleo Manifesto came out. I was sort of known as the Paleo guy in New York and beyond New York, but, and startups started to reach out to me organically, just, you know, sometimes it was like, hey, are these ingredients paleo? Or how do we get on to so-and-so's podcast? Or can you make an introduction to Mark Sisson um, of Mark's Daily Apple Primal Kitchen? And uh, I'm through the space of friends with Mark. A lot of different figures came through New York and I would put on events for them. I threw a book party for Rob Wolf, got a lot of people to a talk for Mark Sisson, a lot, you know, Barefoot Ted, a lot of folks. I just tried to help them. And it wasn't about my empire or my audience or my information product or whatever. It's like, I've got a group of people who are into this stuff and these figures pass through New York and let me just help them accomplish whatever they're trying to accomplish. That's a great way to become friends with people. (laughs) They're like, oh, this, you know. Turns out people like being helped. Yeah, yeah. yeah." And then they help you in return. So the first uh, company I started to advise was Exo, Insect Protein. And they reached out to me cold. I had already written about insect protein in my book, which they didn't know. So it was like an interesting, our heads were in a similar space. They asked me to be an advisor. Um, I ended up introducing them to some folks like Mark Sisson and others who ended up investing. Tim Ferriss ended up investing maybe a year or 18 months later. And we helped get them promotion and all these other things. And uh, I was like, oh, this is interesting. When you're an entrepreneur, you develop a feel for traction. And where the energy is and where the momentum is. And that's something I really pay attention to in my life. I do try to have some optionality and like feel, this sounds woo woo, but feel where the energy is. And if startups are organically reaching out to me about stuff, it's like, oh, I guess I have something that they need or it could be like really helpful to them. Yep. I've never worked at a venture fund other than my own, yep. doing it my own way. And I didn't have capital, you know, coming off a book at living in New York. It's just, it's not like a great way to make money. And so I wasn't even in a position to write checks myself. I hadn't worked at a venture fund. However, if you can do something that is very strategically valuable to startups that can tangibly help them succeed, you can get into the game. So I got into the game by, if I were helped, able to help some of these companies raise some capital from influencers and help them in other ways. It wasn't just on the fundraising side. They'd toss me some options. And for me, that was a way to bootstrap a track record and get into the game. Because the best way to learn something is to do it. I wasn't going to go get a job at a venture fund. I wasn't going to go try to like raise a big fund right off the bat without experience. I wasn't sure if I was good at it. I wasn't sure if I would like it. So it was a part-time gig. I read about it. I talked to my friends who are in the industry about it. And I just tried to find a case study where I could get into the game. So when did
0: you transition out of like, what was your desk job? And then like, when did you make that transition? Was it right around the book time or
1: before that? So first I graduated in 2005 for about two years. I did management consulting, learned a lot, didn't find it to be the most exciting thing. And the hours were sort of crazy, but met a lot of great people and a lot of talented people did about three and a half years at a tech startup, a company called Mindset Media that did online advertising focused on psychographics. Great experience. Did end up being acquired by Mebo, which got acquired by Google. But for me, it was not financially life-changing. It was during that experience when all the paleo stuff took off. And so once I got a book deal, I quit that job. And I've been, I went pro. Professional caveman, (laughs) and so I've been doing you know something in this health space for the last eight years, and then the venture stuff. I guess it was early 2013 when that started to take shape with the first opportunity, and my and Paleo Manifesto came out later in 2013.
0: So you start seeing some of these deals come your way, and start like having interest from these companies inbound, which is. Kind of a nice way to deal with that instead of having to go out and chase people, they're coming to you.
1: That's right. So, they're basically just on that in terms of deal flow. There are basically three types of reasons that you get invited into a deal. One is you're friends with someone, it's like you're just your social network. Two is you provide strategic value. And the third bucket is just capital. And you want to be in the first two buckets because if you really all you have to offer is capital, there's adverse selection. So the best founders, the companies that are already taking off, that have traction, they have multiple sources for capital. And so they're smart, they're optimizers, and they want, as their investors, the people who, it's really one of two things, who they like, because entrepreneurship is hard and it's a long road, and you want to like the people that you work with, and you want them to have your back, and then people who provide value beyond the money and can help the company tangibly succeed. Venture is a space where the vast majority of your returns will come from a relatively small number of opportunities. It's a power law industry. And so within a portfolio, the top investment will make more money than all the other investments combined. And it's sort of, you see that fractal pattern. And so if you are going to get into venture, you need a strategy to get into those types of deals, to either spot them early or even after they're taking off, be able to get into them. And it's just not capital because capital is a commodity. This guy's dollar is just as good as that guy's dollar if you're just measuring the dollars. So if you're going to get into it, you want to be the best at something. Whatever you do, it could be online, it could be branding, it could be product formulation, it could be whatever it is. You just want to be awesome at something. So the best people will reach out and say, yeah, we'd love to have you on the team. Like, how can we get you involved? You see like a crude version of that on Shark Tank where people like, you know,
0: like all the sharks went in. Yeah. So people start like picking out the people that they're interested in working with. But if nobody's interested, then they're like, I guess we have to work with Mr. Wonderful. Yeah. And nobody's, <laughs> nobody's ever excited about that
1: because there's always some more sort of royalty they have to pay well, out. <laughs> I love the show. People should realize that's not how venture investing yeah. <laughs> works. Both in terms of like the company profile that you often see there. I've seen like four companies on Shark Tank where it's women's shoes and you buy like the one base shoe and then you can like attach different covers so that instead of buying four pairs of shoes, you just buy one.
0: I had to stop watching when I saw like the eighth cookie recipe. Like my mother's cookie recipe is so good and we're making a lot of cookies now. And you're like, there's only so many of these companies I can keep watching. Yeah, yeah. I had to give
1: up on that. Yeah. and, And like the way they sort of structure deals are sort of odd. Like all these like royalty deals aren't typically how venture deals are structured. There are lots of companies that they invite on the show that realistically would be a quick no from a lot of people. And it would just be a quick no over email.
0: I haven't watched the show in probably 15 years, but like the first editions of uh, American Idol, where you just bring on the train wrecks to watch the train wreck. And they're like, they bring those people on the show and you're like, that's not
1: a real company. I think my favorite one ever was the guy who said he had like a, some sort of machine that could turn ocean water into gold. It was really, yeah, it was like a, one of the earlier seasons. It was pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. I mean, in terms of like how business works, the profit is a better show yeah. and just understanding like how to operate a business. Yeah. But Shark Tank's fun and part of the entertainment is like uh, shooting people down. But that's sort of unfortunate. People also have this like weird idea that if they have a patent, somebody's going to come along, give them $10 million for the patent. And it's just like not how it works.
0: So you start doing this deal with EXO or you start getting people into that deal. When did the switch flip to think that like, hey, okay, this is not just like a one-off thing, but like maybe, you know, there's a
1: pattern here. You
0: said, you know, you start noticing momentum when you're like, oh, this is something that I'm actually going to spend most of my time and energy focusing on.
1: Yeah. The one that really changed everything for me was Thrive Market. And one of the co-founders, Nick Green, who's the current CEO, was a college friend of mine. We had a couple classes together and we remained in touch after college, had a similar group of friends. And I was staying with him and his fiance, now his wife in LA. I, maybe the CrossFit Games or something like that. I was in LA in 2014. And he's like, I'm working on this next project it's this healthy living retailer and i'm like i'm doing advisory work in the healthy living space and they had gotten turned down by every vc they talked to him and his uh, co-founder gunnar lovelace the original founder of the company and they both had had successful exits in the past they sort of like fit the profile of someone you would think it would be like easy to get vc funding and like 50 of them all said no and from a vc perspective i can sort of like understand why Basically, three reasons. One was retail is not a winner take all category. So, VCs like opportunities where it could be a hundred billion dollar exit if it takes off because you swing for the fences. And Amazon could be winner take all, but like you could see that it could be worth one to 15 billion because that's what like a tier of retailers were. But like it was hard to make a claim that it would be like a winner take all. Gotcha. Some VCs won't invest in a company that might one day have to compete with Amazon just as, as a general rule, because they're so good at execution. They're more fearsome than probably any other company. And and they're willing to like take losses to drive people out of business. What's this saying is
0: like your margin is my opportunity. Yeah. That's his like quote. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and, oh,
1: okay. And look like Amazon bought Whole Foods. Our mission at Thrive is to make healthy food more accessible for everyone. And if Amazon Whole Foods helps accomplish that mission, that's a good thing. And that's why we're doing this. And so that's why we're doing it. So in a sense, I also want them to succeed. And it's kind of like weird to say because it's competitive with it and I'm not just like blowing smoke. You know, and the third reason that they got turned down is if you're a retailer like stocking a lot of inventory and SKUs and doing your own fulfillment, you have to hold a lot of inventory and that requires a lot of working capital. Mm -hmm. So there were some just reasons why structurally it looked like a very difficult business to get off the ground. And from my perspective, it's like, well, we knew that a bunch of our followers in the space, ourselves included, wanted a service like this. Because I was buying stuff from five different sources. It was like my farmer's market, the local Whole Foods, my local grocery store that wasn't Whole Foods, online, at Amazon, direct to a brand site. I was like all over the place. And to have one place that I could go and get like all my pantry stuff. So, so real quick, Thrive Market is Whole Foods meets Costco. It's an online membership. That's and, correct.
0: And you get like this. I don't think we, yeah, we yeah, cover that yeah, real correct. quick. So it, yeah. It's, it's 60, bucks, people,
1: 60 bucks annual membership like Costco. And then you get 25 to 50% off a bunch of non-perishable, non-GMO, mostly organic, like healthy products. So you're going to a bunch of different stores and you realized... Yeah, and it's expensive. I mean, Whole Foods is a whole paycheck. And Instacart is a premium on top of Whole Foods yeah, or yeah, yeah. <laughs> wherever you're getting it from. So, that's not like the low-cost option. It's a convenience op- premium convenience option. And then, you know, it's just understanding that it, if this were to take off, it could be incredibly strategically valuable to be at the center of the healthy commerce ecosystem for book launches or for whatever, whatever the case may be. So, from an influencer's perspective, the investment was sort of like a no-brainer. It's like, we want to see this in the world. This is the type of company that can have enough scale that it can change the food system, change the supply chain, and tell companies stories. There are all these companies out there that have incredible stories about the founders, about what they've done on the supply chain, how they source things, all this stuff. And in a typical brick-and-mortar retailer, you don't get a chance to tell that story, but online and with video, you can. So we actually tell the story of different brands, much better than like any other retailer anywhere. So that's exciting. So I brought in about a half a dozen people into the seed round at Thrive. And then another 35, 40 or so investors over the next 18 to 24 months, most of whom were were influencers. And then Gunnar and the team at Thrive, they really ran with it and brought in, used that initial momentum that we did together to bring even more folks. So it just sort of built on itself. and that's what we like to see. We like a founder who runs with it and creates a movement, an alliance. And Thrive took off. I mean, you know, within six months with no paid marketing other than affiliate commissions, they were on a like a mid eight figure run rate. And we're able to raise a $30 million Series A. Suddenly, all the VCs wanted to invest. You know, it's like they flip a switch, and (laughs) it's actually really easy to invest when it's just like looking at the hockey stick. If you see the hockey stick invest, like a monkey can do that. And the people that I brought in who are authentic health figures who legitimately believed in the mission, they were the ones who were most successful at driving the business, not the A-list celebrities. A-list celebrities are dramatically overrated, not the celebrity chefs, not the professional athletes. Sometimes if one of those people really gets behind something in a big way, it can work. But I see all these companies in LA that they get excited about the celebrity shit. And it's like... Oh, a 25K check from so and so. First of all, they're so wealthy that $25,000 doesn't matter to them. They have huge egos. They're not good at digital marketing. Their followers don't follow them because of X, Y, and Z, you know, some like food thing. They follow them because like they're hot or whatever. You know, so Thrive really worked. I moved out. In VC, you're not judged by your failures, you're judged by your successes. And you only need a few big ones. And people start to treat you like a genius, even if you're not. Really, it's great founders make me look good. That's the most important thing when you're investing because the founders are the ones that are going to solve the thousand problems that inevitably come up as you build this business. Like, I'm not going to be solving all those. You know, we can help with promotion. We can do what we do, but like, we stay in our lane and we do what we do and we do it really fucking well. So what do you see in those founders when they come to you? What did you see in in the
0: Axel guys and then Thrive? Like, are there specific traits that you kind of notice or you keep an eye out for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I have a few, like, heuristics that I feel emotionally. Like, one is when Wild Ventures gets involved, a lot of influencers will invest and then promote. Do I feel comfortable making an introduction between this founder or founders And other people who are in my inner circle, whose relationships I value a lot, who are busy people, can I make an introduction and then walk away and know they're going to have an intelligent, thoughtful conversation and they're going to handle themselves professionally and intelligently? And so if I feel a pit in my stomach about making an introduction for someone, I turn the other way and run. That's just one that I can feel on a gut level rather than just like analytically going through. We look for, obviously for people that are tenacious and intelligence is important, but like tenacity and not taking no for an answer. And it's not just not taking no for an answer, it's just like finding ways to solve problems and integrity. I mean, if there is a whiff of dishonesty It is just so easy. Like To me, that's almost a relief because I'm like, this is a no, and it's a well-justified no. And I don't have to worry about it. And even if that company maybe turns out to be successful, I don't lose any sleep over it. It's just a really clear heuristic. I get decks from people that will list advisors, and the deck makes it show that they are formally affiliated with the company. I often know those people. So I text them, and I say, do you know you're in this deck? And if they say no, I'm like, oof, that's bad. I'm all for leaning in. I'm all for like being aggressive and sort of act first and apologize later. But there's also a line and there's a line where it goes into deception. I routinely come across that. And and then there, there are situations where someone will tell me that someone is investing or committed to investing. I mean, someone told me once that a person at Thrive was going to invest. And I don't think they fully realized that I like work out of the office there. So I caught up the phone and went as that person, if they were investing, they're like, <laughs> I never told them I was investing. That's like an immediate no. Because if you are going to have a long-term relationship with someone like five to 10 years long, trust is slow to come and quick to go. You're basically dating them for you're, five. You're, mar- yeah. you're marrying them. Dating is the process before you decide whether you're going to invest. Then you're in a relationship with them for five to 10 years often. And you just can't have a lack of integrity there. So that's a very big deal. I've had a couple of partnerships where we drew up the contract
0: at the beginning. And I was like, we need to have the contract from a legal standpoint. But if I actually have to use it, if I'm actually worried about having to like reference it in the future, like I'm probably just not going to do the deal in the first place. We have to have it legally, whatever. But like, I actually just bought out my partner. I don't know if I've told anybody on this podcast yet, but uh, I had a partner on MoveWell and I just bought him out and it, ended up going over really well because he was a good judge of character from the get-go. And I was like, I want to work with this guy no matter what. And we had some extenuating circumstances. I'll have Dimitri on here at some point and we'll talk about the whole thing. But uh, it was like, do I want to work with Dimitri first of all? And you have no questions about his character, no no issues along those lines. It's like, okay, it
1: doesn't matter what's on the contract. We're going to figure this out. Well, I agree with a proviso because definitely... The vast majority of these situations where there's a disagreement never make it to lawyers and shouldn't make it to lawyers. Lawyers can't solve your problems, basically, your business issues. However, it is important to have terms Mm -hmm. because people's attitudes change over time. Like if they come to you and they don't have a product in market and there's a lot of anxiety about whether this is going to take off, that person acts very differently than the person three years later where things have taken off and they think they're a genius and it's all due to their own inborn brilliance. It's good to have for expectations
0: and and it sets like, hey, this is what,
1: and you have references for it. Yeah. Even if it's just like a list of bullets, that's more important than like some of the legal stuff. Like you do need to get the legal stuff in place, but like a list of bullets so that there's clarity over broadly who gets what or what parameters you're within that is important because when people's situations change their views change
0: it's good to have a, as a reference document but it's like it was a smaller deal and it was one of those things where it's like if i have to use a lawyer then like we i shouldn't even be in this yep. in the first place yep. but from an expectation standpoint Expectations, it's like every, every yeah. time every time you're like oh like if you think oh he's a good guy blah blah, blah blah but you don't have the contract like you almost need the contract to like reference back to like who were you when you started and if things change, if things, extenuating circumstances, like change, you always have the reference to like, this is actually what
1: was agreed to. And, and, and this you is need to know whether you're 50-50 or 80-20. Yeah. There are situations like that. So like, if you get the parameters and that basic stuff, then, you know, there's some companies that I work with now where, you know, we haven't hammered out the exact advisory contract, but we already have an email, like what the guidelines are. I'm deeply embedded with these people. We have dozens of common friends and, there's more like flexibility and grace in that relationship. Yeah, you do not want to get legalistic. You're in trouble if you arrive at that place. Yeah.
0: So 2013, 2014, you invest in Thrive and then you come out here?
1: 2014 is when I get involved in Thrive. It's April. I got involved pre-launch and then they launched in October of 2014. So by early 2015, it's taking off in a big way. I leave New York in mid 2015, spend a little time in Austin, then end up in LA. And it was just the right place to do Wild Ventures full time. So now I'm doing it full time. I've got, again, people, they just want to see if you can deliver winners. And as soon as you deliver something that looks like a winner, then people are like, they want to work with you. So, you know, got a website up, started to do it full time, raised a small fund from the Thrive co-founders. That was actually part of our agreement when we got started i said guys if this works i want to get a fund off the ground and i would love your support with that because i'm taking a risk on you guys and if this works it's not just like the financial result i want to take this to the next level and they two years later or you know a year and a half later they totally followed through on that they've found ways to lift a lot of other people up whether it's sisson with primal kitchen and other folks like that so so moved out to la work out of their office i have an angel i started an angelist syndicate which is, for people who aren't familiar, AngelList is an angel investing platform. And syndicates are a way to, they're just pools of investors who invest together into something and will invest as one entity. AngelList will form an LLC. It can have up to 99 members. People can come in for a variety of different check sizes. That all gets bundled together. And then we'll invest in a company. And the reason why we structure it that way, in part, is Fit is very important for this influencer model. We only are going to invest in stuff that we believe is healthy. We're very serious about that because if you're talking to a Sisson or a wellness mama or a Chris Kresser, their reputation is incredibly important to them. It's incredibly important to me. And they are not going to sacrifice their reputation for a $20,000 angel investment. Like their reputation is worth, like you can't put a number on it. So most things we just say no to because we don't believe it's healthy. There's like a bunch of sugar in it. We're like, sorry, we're not going to promote that. Like really easy no, pass. And there'll be companies that are taking off and people look at me like I'm crazy that we're passing on it because it just seems like free money or risk-free money. There's no such thing, but I'm like, Guys, it has twenty-five grams of sugar in it. We're not promoting it. Period. There'd be immediate backlash, and we don't believe in it. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about that model for a second, because I think that's different that I've seen from you versus maybe larger funds that, like, okay, all these big funds raise based on the notoriety of their reputation, and you sort of you have a syndicate and then the fund, and you kind of collect all these. What's it? Micro influencers, but they're not micro anymore. They're like, you know, mid-tier but super influential within their niche. And then you kind of collect that and then use that to launch. And I don't know of other funds or other, like maybe there's other syndicates out there that do similar things. I'd say
1: the closest thing is Tim Ferriss. And I did look at him as I did this and he's actually been helpful. And we have co invested on a deal together and I'm super grateful to him for blazing a trail. He's got some great blog posts on his investing strategy, and he's done it very well with Uber and Twitter and and stuff like that. And he has a significant platform. What I started to do was specifically to focus on healthy living and to try to have as much of our investments come from influencers with platforms as possible uh, so that we could Offer a very tangible benefit and sort of goes back to what I said at the beginning. You don't need a bunch of capital to get into the game. If you can really tangibly help startups in a very unique way, you can get into the venture game. And we're not competitive with other established funds because they're writing bigger checks, they're leading rounds, and we typically don't lead rounds. And so we like. We're complimentary to them. We slide in alongside them. I get pings from venture funds all the time. Like, hey, we're doing this company, wanna come in for 300,000. Cause they know that I can move the needle and they know that I can bring something that they don't have, which is the direct component. It's led to some challenges. Like because I have this unconventional structure, I don't have a management fee. A typical venture VCs will go raise a pot of money, call it a hundred million bucks. That would be a decent sized fund. You know, the standard thing is sort of two and 20, 2% management fee on assets per year and 20% carry, which is a percentage of profits if the portfolio ends up successful. And top funds actually charge more than 20%. They might charge 30 or 35% or sometimes there's like a scale where the better the performance is, the higher the percentage the manager gets. But because I raise capital on a deal-by-deal basis through AngelList, I don't have a pool of capital to take a management fee from but these are very long-term gigs. So I'm sort of cash poor and equity rich, but like I can't let my head, like it's just paper money. Like all those gains, they might be gains for a while, but sometimes things do well and then they do poorly. And you can't allow paper gains to change your mindset, and the mindset that allowed you to get where you are. So it ain't over till it's over and you just have to continue to execute. And I don't even, the equity value of things, I don't even know what it is right now. I don't take the time to like figure out exactly what it is because I don't want my mind to fixate on it. It's not real. I was going to ask you how do you manage the like fluctuations of like
0: the ups and downs emotionally of like, oh, this company's doing well, this like terrible thing just happened. You just kind of separate it out in your mind, or what do you it's, do for that? It's,
1: it's a constant challenge. There are a lot of extremes in entrepreneurship and in like high stakes, venture backed entrepreneurship. And it is a roller coaster. It does feel like perpetual launch mode, where it's, it's high stakes. It always feels life or death. So it's challenging. What I try to do, I mean, first of all, if I get too high or too low, I will just go talk to people around me. And they help calibrate. Like, Nick Green at Thrive is a great example of this. He's a very like even-keeled person. And if I'm too high or too low, he sort of like brings me back to middle by having a conversation with him. And he's like, I think you're a little too, this isn't as bad as you think it is. And this good thing isn't as be careful. Don't let your feelings run away with it. You know, so that's some of the way to stay sane. But it's a, um, like partly, I don't really think about the equity value of things. I seriously do not have a spreadsheet with the value of every little piece of equity that I have in things. I mean, I can quickly assemble it if I were being audited or if somebody asked or like checking performance and stuff, but like, I don't let myself think about it. I don't let myself think about it. That's good.
0: Yeah. Just like park that over somewhere else and just focus on like what the day to day
1: is. I actually derive more enjoyment from helping other people make money. If you help someone in a very meaningful way, if you help them care for their loved ones, you make someone seven figures or something like that or more sometimes. Yeah. It, it's a good feeling. They start to treat you like family. Yeah. And and that's a great bond. You've done something special together. And it is a great feeling. So I, I actually derive more enjoyment from that than like trying to count what I might make if some of these things succeed.
0: It's also hard once like your investment I would imagine it's hard to keep focusing on these things like these valuations can fluctuate depending on the rounds and, and maybe you're not even involved in the, the next rounds that come on and they're outside your like locus of control and instead of just like being able to focus on like what am I doing today what am I doing this week what am I doing this month yeah. instead of being like okay I did that thing two years ago and I, I'm not touching it anymore but like it's moving up and down and it has nothing to do with what you're actually doing
1: yeah but the longer you're in it I mean, the better you get at it. And when you've seen traders or people on Wall Street who have been through a recession or some bear market or some bubble pops or whatever, they learn lessons from that and they don't let themselves get carried away as much. Whereas, like, you know, we've been in basically a bull market for, for what, like eight years or something like that, uh, more or less. And people forget. So, right now, valuations are really high. And I've just been through times where I'm like, where valuations were nowhere close to this for the amount of traction that someone has. And when you've seen, like, you don't get carried away with that. I'm like, sorry, the returns just aren't here. So we're not going to get behind this. Meanwhile, like founders will be like, oh, somebody's raising money at a $70 million valuation and they haven't launched. I'm like, yeah, pass. Yeah. So one of the things that I found, I always have to
0: remind myself of, and I would imagine there's a similar type thing in the venture world is, lagging indicators and sometimes you're like oh i'm doing really well right now but it's because of something you did two years ago or three years ago sometimes it's easy to conflate the idea that like oh whatever i'm doing now is causing how ever my current situation is so i one do you run into that two how do you kind of avoid that or do you just focus on like the day-to-day week-to-week type thing like this investment i made two years ago is like killing it i am so smart right now like like how do you how do you keep finding those types of deals. Yeah. So putting yourself in those situations.
1: Yeah. It is difficult and I don't have all the answers. And if you talk to other professional VCs who are actually thoughtful and honest people, they will also tell you that they don't have all the answers and there is an element of luck involved and you really can only start to see like how skilled people are over the course of decades. Um, so there's that you know, I'm running into this situation right now. We're very grateful that we just had our first exit. So Primal Kitchen got acquired by Kraft Heinz for about $200 million. And Mark Sisson and his co-founder, Morgan Bueller, they're both phenomenal founders, you know, built that company in basically four years, pretty remarkable. And um, it's a lot of congratulations, getting text messages from people. And emotionally, I've definitely felt excitement. Also felt relief because being on the inside. I know there are negotiations happening. I know that there's bidding happening. I know that docu- you know we're reviewing documents. so people get the surprise of like the press release, but this has been a very incremental thing that has been coming into reality. It's not a surprise to me. I'm just like relieved I can talk to people about it now. I don't have to like be tight-lipped about the fact that it's happening and super grateful to have one under our belt. but that was also you know something from years ago that we got involved in, in that relationship with Mark. And it's partly like we have investment criteria. The moment that I think I'm some sort of genius and my whims are like, what is doing this is when this can easily go off the rails. So I have investment criteria that we go through and try to have a structured approach and things to check our thinking so that we don't just emotionally get carried away. But at the same time, like I do pay attention to my gut on whether I want to work with someone and be in a five to 10 year relationship with them. So are you from like a staying disciplined, staying focused and
0: staying like true to your criteria and your investment thesis, what are you doing on like the day to day to stick with that? Is it like inbound stuff still where people are finding you and you've kind of built that reputation and you get a lot of inbound deals happening and it's mostly filtering through or are you like perusing and trying to find out deals that other people don't know about?
1: Yeah. So we get a ton of inbound in food and beverage in particular. And so that is a lot of screening and filtering. And then we will reach out opportunistically to some company that we really like. And because we can offer strategic value, virtually everyone's willing to have a conversation. A lot of people are willing to take our money, even if they're not raising money, which is a great place it's to differentiated, be. differentiated, like yeah. you said before. Yeah. Right, right. I've written down a set of criteria that we look for, and that keeps us honest. You end up saying no a lot. And that part is actually sort of difficult because I prefer to say yes. And I like to be people's friends. And it's very strange. Like there's an element to early stage venture that is like very much like dating. And initially, like VCs or the people with money are sort of like being an attractive woman at a party. And guess what? She's going to get approached a lot. And it gets tiring And you start to zone out and like block people out. And sometimes some bitter guy may be like, oh man, she's a bitch. But it's like, from her perspective, if you have like 50 dudes or douchebags coming up and like saying the same shit and whatever, you can't process that in your head. You have to like draw some boundaries and have some filters for like who gets in and who doesn't. Oh, it's like you meet some guy because it's like friend of a friend and your friend tells you that this guy's awesome. People pay attention. And it's like that with a deal. Like if there's somebody in my network that says you need to look at this, I trust their judgment and I look at it. If I get something on the contact form of my site, I look at it. I keep an open mind. But it's like that person didn't hustle to find somebody that was one degree removed from me that would forward something along or trade a favor to get like an intro or something like that. So there's that element. I could do the dating yeah, comparisons yeah, yeah, yeah. forever. <laughs> um, it's very funny. VCs are can also pay attention to social proofs. If a bunch of VCs are investing in something, suddenly all of the other VCs are like, oh, we should invest in this yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. If you like walk, into a bar with an attractive partner or whatever like people notice and they're like oh that person must be awesome more than man or woman but like at the end of the day the dating world can be full of bullshit and like tricksters and like people trying to be stuff that they're not at the end of the day for a long-term relationship for a marriage you want people who are a good fit they have the same long-term values they're both awesome and you often want like complementary roles, people who are awesome at different things. Like they both have to be like a base level of awesome. And then maybe they're like awesome at different stuff. And we see that both with co-founders, that dynamic, and we see that with investors and companies. We pay a ton of attention to fit. It's forced upon us by our model. And that is what is makes for a good long-term partner. I'm not in the business of twisting people's arms to promote stuff. I'm in the business of finding things that are a natural fit for us that we are happy and excited to share with the world because then I don't have to be bad cop. I don't have to like try to get people to do stuff they don't want to do. It's just like, oh man, this is, we believe in this. We want this to exist. Let's build the future. So there's that dynamic. So it feels like
0: one of the main jobs there is just filtration, just clearing through all the junk. But what, what are the other hard or difficult challenges that you run into on either day-to-day or just on an ongoing basis that you might not have expected when you wrote the book and then kind of stumbled into a couple of deals and decided to make this the full-time thing?
1: Yeah, well, I keep on doing projects that are long-term projects that might not be financially rewarding in terms of cash in the short term. So one of the things, this is just sort of like an annoyance of mine that I have all these friends who have built great platforms in the health space that provide some amount of passive income. And I never did that myself. So that's a bit of a regret, but I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing now and, and grateful to be doing it. But that's something I've sort of struggled with is like just on the cash side of things. Cause I don't have a management fee. So,
0: yeah. I was going to ask about that earlier when you mentioned like most funds have like a management fee. So what, what do you do to float? Is it like just book sales? Is it like other stuff, other projects that you've done in the past? And like, Then, you know, when you have the primal kitchen exit and all these other things that come through and you just kind of, you know, those are thankfully big enough or whatever, but.
1: Yeah, I'm sort of opportunistic. I did put on a small mastermind or medium-sized mastermind a couple years ago that was a paid event for investors and that went well and that floated me for a period of time. I just sort of thought like if people in my group are going to pay me for something, I should deliver. Obviously, I need to deliver returns to them, which has been happening, <laughs> which has been working. And I want to deliver something immediately of value to them in, in the moment. So I put on a nice event and and have some people come and talk about angel investing and influencer marketing. So that's one thing. I've done some consulting projects. I don't as a general rule, I don't set up cash relationships with a very early stage business because I don't want to have a reputation for juicing startups for cash. I don't think it's an ethical thing to do. And if I'm bringing capital, helping bring capital into these companies and investing, I don't wanna just like recycle the cash through us. That's just, we're here as long-term investors and I wanna be aligned with my investors' interests. You know, Sometimes if a company raises a bunch more money or is profitable or something like that, and they need additional help on something, then I will structure an engagement with them that will throw me some cash for a period of time. You know, so occasionally I'll be like on retainer for someone, you know, and then it's just like miscellaneous stuff, a little bit of speaking, a little bit of book income. That's mostly it. Yeah.
0: That's kind of nice because like, if you have enough of that, then you can just like focus on the, the long-term things where you don't have the cash, but long-term partner, like.
1: Sort of the way that I think about money in terms of these long-term projects is there's, it's not like a specific number. I have, for me, I know there's like an amount of money that's life-changing and amount of money that's not. Yep. And those are the two buckets I, for the most part, try to only get involved in opportunities where if it's a success, it's a life changing amount of money. Do you, um, do you have a number for that? To me, it is a particular type of lifestyle. It's hard to talk about this without sounding obnoxious. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't.
0: I've heard anywhere from like, uh, you know, like a few hundred thousand dollars to like $50 million. Like people like say, like, that's my number. And you're like, it's completely different based on everybody's individuality but
1: what i would like to do is without having to work much if at all make low to mid six figure income which i mean if i can't be happy and live a great life from that the problem's with me yeah. definitely the problem's with me i don't have like crazy expensive tastes you know i drive a ford escape that i yeah. lease <laughs> um and I'm perfectly happy with it. And I don't buy a lot of clothes and I actually don't even eat out very much. And so I just like- You buy a lot of books though. I buy a lot of books. We're surrounded by just books all over your apartment. <laughs> like Ryan Holiday, if I want a book, I buy it. Yeah, I love books. I am going to write more books and I'd like to be able to do that without any financial pressure. So you know, for me, I'd love to make five to 10 million bucks. That That is what I'm shooting for. And, and I- think with that amount of money, I can, you know, set things up so that I don't really have to think about money. I know I can, but again, I don't want to sound like a douchebag. No, it's about
0: setting you up to do the things that you want to be able to do. And anytime you talk about money, everybody sounds, I think, a little douchey, but like, yeah, it's also the podcast called impossible. It's about doing right. Impossible. things. Right. Right. Hey, I'm not going to tell you. And, and and yeah, do something.
1: There's a mindset that changes where once you have some initial success and able to put a little bit of money away, then you start to value your time very differently and very much more. And only take on projects that are big projects, where if it works, it's a big deal. And that's actually a very important paradigm shift. You don't necessarily need money in the bank to have that mentality, but suddenly you're like, okay, well, I'm not playing for 50,000 bucks anymore. Um, And so if I'm going to spend my time on something and it works. It needs to be like a really significant result. And it's a good way of like evaluating projects even if you're just thinking about like launching a business line for your own company. Well, am I going to invest all this time and capital and energy and whatever if it isn't even going to be a big business line? Like no. I don't know
0: who the original investor was that said something along those lines, but I know Taylor Pearson, I don't know if you know who he is. He's a, one of my buddies. He's really good at breaking down like these big complicated heuristics and making them Understandable, but he always talks about table selection. It takes about the same amount of energy to build a big business as it does a small business. So you just have to like, it's like picking what pond you want to jump in or whatever it is, or what table you want to sit at. You're going to spend that amount working on anything anyway. So to make anything successful, it takes a lot of work. So make sure that your vision is big enough or that the game that you want to get into is
1: big enough for what your end goal is. Yeah, and I'm in a space right now where I've made a decision really over the past eight years, I have a pretty high pain tolerance. And being in this like cash poor, but swinging for the fences mentality, I'm like, I can do that for a decade. But like if I go get a comfortable salary doing consulting, there's just all sorts of ways in which golden handcuffs creep in and and, and, like different expenses and whatever. And like right now, I can't do that. I have
0: an interesting theory on this because I feel like I'm pretty similar in this way. Uh, Do you ever play Settlers of Catan? yes okay so uh how do you typically like build out your resources what i'm getting at is typically when i play those games is yeah. another one was like i just end up buying all the assets and then i'm like i don't have any cash in hand and then i'm like there's all these points where if something goes badly you're like this is gonna but i have a insane risk tolerance where you're just like this is the strategy and this is gonna pay off and you just gotta hang on until it like kicks in and uh I realized in a couple of my businesses, I was like, man, I, uh, I'm really playing like the long game here. I probably should like do some like shorter wins, whatever. Yeah. And then I realized I'm I'm just like playing business. Like I play all my board games. And then I realized that I was like, oh, you know, this is going to be hard. This is going to be a high pain tolerance or whatever. But like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to be totally fine. And this is going to play out okay. So I realized I play my business, like play my business, quote unquote. But um, I operate <laughs> some things in my business. Like I uh, play games or competing games. And I was like, I recognize that behavior. And I was like, okay. At least have a reference point for this, and like I can see that same stress, and I'm like, it helps me chill out a little bit when I, yeah, when I deal with that.
1: Yeah, for sure, I, I totally feel that. There's also an element where I have a personality where I just don't like being part of a big organization, and I like to do my own thing, and I like to show up when I show up, and in some ways, I am kind of not employable. I have strong opinions and I'm going to dress how I want to dress and all this other stuff. And that's just, once you've been doing entrepreneurship for long enough, like the idea of like going to work a Monday through Friday thing and have someone else be my boss is just a very foreign concept.
0: So how do you, how do you maintain your own discipline in that? Cause I, I feel again, you're speaking right to me, but I found that was my MO for like the last three or four years where I was like, I'm Definitely right, it, it becomes I'm, too loosey-goosey. Yeah, but then I got to a point basically like the last six months where I was like, I'm drowning in freedom. Yeah. Like I have way too much too un, freedom. Too unstructured. Yeah, and then I was like, okay, you have to at least impose discipline on yourself. If Like you don't have to have a boss, but you have to become your own boss. Yeah. And so what do you do in order to like make sure that like you're not just going Full, all over? Right, yeah. so,
1: I mean, so one thing was I started working out of Thrive Market's office. Okay. I don't have a boss that forces me to show up every day, but I'm there probably four days a week if I'm not on the road, going into an office does force some discipline on it, even if I roll in at 930 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's a piece of it. I'm on Slack channels with portfolio companies, so I'm accessible to them and there's accountability on that front. But there is a um, there's a weird psychology in venture where you could go a few months and not do a deal. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how big your fund is and what your strategy is. But for me, I can go a few months and not do a deal. And you start to wonder like, am I slacking off? Am I undisciplined? Am I not seeing the right deals? Should I be speaking at more stuff? And then suddenly, a couple months later, you're trying to do three at once. Yeah. It's feast and famine when it rains and pours, all that sort of stuff. So it really screws with your psychology. And my goal is to just like keep consistently putting another four or five really good bets on the table every year and helping those companies succeed. And I just, I have faith that if I continue to do that, something will work. And, and that's what's been, and you know, Naval Ravikan, I listened to his podcast and, and he's become a friend. He's a really smart investor. You know, he says like, I rarely meet good entrepreneurs who don't succeed at some point at something. Um, it might not be the first thing. It might not be the second thing. It might not be the third thing. But like, if you have persistence and you are good at what you do, It's not just persistence alone, but like something will hit. There is an element of faith where like, I'm just going to keep doing it and work towards things continuing to hit.
0: Jordan Peterson talks about stuff like uh, when people get really miserable, when you focus on things that like are outside your locus of control. I think that's the terminology he uses. And it's like, if you focus on whether or not deals are happening in the last three months, like you can't really focus on it. It's like, what's the goal for this year? What are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Like do what you can
1: control and then focus on that. I also, part of my constitution is that if I know that I have work I should be doing and I'm not doing it, I feel guilty and I feel anxiety. So I I have a pretty high, I know there are emails in my inbox right now that I should have responded to a month ago yeah. or longer. And I know which ones they are and I feel guilt about them. I should probably have a better system and all these other things, but it's partly like right now I'm focusing on my most important things to do. And that means I've gotta say no to everything else. And sometimes for me, that means I'm not responding to a bunch of emails that I just don't have the headspace for right now, but it does create some social friction where some people get frustrated with me. And the ideal world is I respond to all these emails and like make a decision on every little thing. I'm not perfect. I'm not totally awesome at everything that I do. Sometimes it's just like there's incompetence there, but your strengths can outweigh your weaknesses. And so I just focus on like, if I can continue to make investments and focus on my three most important things, the rest will take care of itself.
0: Yeah. What's next both for you and like trend wise, like are there different product areas that you're like, you're interested in from like the venture side or that you're seeing things come up or what part of that health and wellness space are you really trying to get involved
1: in? Yeah. So we'll do the trends first there are some long run trends or like trends of the last five, 10 years that are continuing to play out. Obviously the, you know, fat is back. And so we do look at a lot of companies and products that uh, have full fat versions of some product that is traditionally full fat, but during the low fat era, it was all stripped out and sort of bastardized. And Primal Kitchen is a good example of that because they use avocado oil instead of canola and soybean oil. These obviously Bad, unhealthy oils, and gave permission to for people to eat mayonnaise again. Yeah. A lot of the customers weren't having Hellman's, they just didn't eat mayo at all. Yeah. Um, and, and now we eat, eat mayo again. I think I was one of those people. I was like, I don't
0: like, I don't even like mayo. Yeah. Like it's kind of a weird, whatever. And then the avocado mayo
1: or whatever, it's like, oh my
0: God, it's just amazing.
1: Yeah. So fat is definitely one. We see that with the rise of keto stuff. I do think that keto is jumping the shark in. A lot of ways that there's always a moment with these different approaches where the weight loss crowd gets interested in it and look there's just like a set of people who are looking for a magic bullet where this diet is finally going to work this time and a lot of those people aren't even doing they're not in ketosis they think they're doing keto but they're not they're just doing like low carb and guess what if you eat enough like keto friendly foods all at once it's going to throw you out of ketosis. You know, so I think that is going to it's like know it's
0: like the paleo desserts that you're like, Oh, you have a uh,
1: this is all honey, dates, right. Forty seven fruits and like yeah. you're wondering why your blood yeah. sugar spiking. And then you had two of them. Yeah. So keto has been around for in the, at least in the formal medical community for over a hundred years and sort of longer in history. So it will continue. it's not gonna disappear. I do think there is gonna be a reckoning with keto in, in the next maybe eighteen months or so, a couple of years. And I'm not Totally confident that it will, there would be a bunch of like keto focused companies that end up being acquired, but we'll see. In terms of, I've been asked before, but including by some big CPGs, consumer packaged goods companies, whether like gluten free is a fad. And it's like, well, there's some goofy gluten free stuff out there where it's still like highly processed and not good for you, but guess what? It doesn't have gluten in it. And that's silly. But uh, the way I said it to them is like, I'm not going to call the top of gluten-free. I'm not going to play that game, but it's possible that gluten-free is overrated while grain-free is still underrated. So I think we're still at the beginning of moving away from wheat, corn, and soy as the basis of our food system, even if there's some like gluten-free products out there that are kind of jumping the shark. So that is a trend. I do think that... um, taking action is actually a big unsolved problem in the healthy living space. Like anyone who's written like a diet book or a fitness book or whatever knows that, okay, well, people may buy the book. Do they read it? And then do they take action as a result? And that is a big unsolved problem. And we invested in a mobile app called Spar, where you do challenges with friends. And so there's some social accountability built in. And it's great. Like if you do the work, you're more likely to get results. You're more likely to be happy about it. And then you feel good about it and you can you have momentum and you keep doing it. We think taking action is a big deal. That's another theme we look at. Like I like cults, things that have cult followings, and I mean that in a positive way, where there's so many different products in the health and fitness world that require a lot of discipline and willpower. And There's all sorts of fitness apps that are like this, where it's like, hey, if you're really disciplined and you're working out all the time and you're tracking all this stuff, we're going to give you good results. The problem is most people aren't disciplined and having all the willpower and don't identify with being like a fitness junkie. It works for the hardcore people, but it doesn't go mainstream. So we like cults where it's not like a disciplined willpower thing. It's like part of your identity and what you do in your lifestyle. And then on the other spectrum, We like passive interventions. So can this work on the least healthy, least motivated person? Will it still work for them? And we invested in uh, the company that makes the chili pad, thin mattress pad that allows you to cool your sleep surface or warm it, but most people use it for cool. And we love that it is a passive intervention. It changes your temperature without discipline or willpower, you're asleep. Even if you're like the laziest person in the world, you install it, it works. And it helps you, so we like those two poles. Being in the mushy middle is sort of like a weird spot for us. There's lots of activity in the fermented space. Hard kombucha has been really hot. We steer clear of a lot of if it's something plant based pretending to be something that's not. We don't get involved a lot of plant based stuff is grain based
0: they're like it's wheat and soy and you're like eh.
1: yeah or it's really carby or it's really processed in general i don't like anything that pretends to be something that it's not Yeah. even if it comes to like almond milk i'm like sorry that's not milk that is almond water yeah what juice. is
0: what is technically almond milk yeah they it's like, like strained almonds
1: yeah they yeah. like squeeze it and strain it and add water to it yeah so i i don't like anything that pretends to be something that it's not. Obviously direct consumer has gotten really big um, where there are a lot of brands that uh, start online. They find like their cult following online, wherever it is. And then that provides a basis. If they're going to go sell in traditional retail, like you do online first, it generates awareness, customer base. You can figure out what your best products are, refine a lot of things generate cash, higher margin, better cash flow, direct relationship with customers, better new product launches, all these incredible benefits, and then use that as a platform to go into brick-and-mortar retail. That's like a playbook that is we pursue and, and other people are pursuing. It's very effective. Those are some of the trends that I look at. And I, I use evolution to assess some of the health claims that people send my way. That's one heuristic I'll use and whether I think it actually like fits in and is like a lasting truth. So in terms of, I guess, what's next, I'm focused on doing my four or five deals a year. I'm gonna still do that. We've got some exciting stuff coming up that I can't talk about, unfortunately. And then eventually, hopefully enough of these things hit. The Primal Kitchen thing just happened like two weeks ago. So we can
0: like celebrate
1: that for a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. before the guilt and the anxiety come back, (laughs) we will celebrate that. And it was incredible what they built and they make me look good and just grateful to be along for the ride. Cool. So where can uh, people find out more about you if they want to check out the
0: fund uh, and the various projects that you're invested in?
1: WildVentures.VC is my website. So people can see the portfolio and all that sort of stuff, learn about the syndicate there. I'm on Twitter at John Durant, J-O-H-N-D-U-R-A-N-T. I'm leading a petition for you to tweet more. I've quieted down. I've quieted down. It's just, there's so much outrage all the time that I don't want to get sucked into it. I'm working on helping these companies grow and people just get outraged about every little thing these days. And emotionally... I just don't have the energy or the time to be outraged all the time. Yeah, Three people on Twitter get
0: mad about something. That's a news article.
1: I know. I know. So I've sort of scaled that back a little bit. I'm trying to scale back social media in general. I've just found that it just doesn't make me that happy. I have gotten some good things out of Twitter over the years, mostly just meeting interesting people. And Instagram mostly makes me feel negative about my life relative to other people, even though that shouldn't be the case. And I've mostly deactivated Facebook. I'm not on social a whole lot, but you can find me on Twitter. I do tweet about all sorts of different subjects. So it's not just like a bunch of paleo stuff. And then if people want to check out my book, you know, Amazon or elsewhere, the paleo manifesto, it's not a diet book. There are no recipes, but you will find stuff in there that you don't find in other paleo books. It's not just a retread. Yeah. Cool.
0: Awesome. I will will, uh, put those links in show notes, and uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having it. It was a lot of fun. All right, guys. So that's it for today's show. If you guys enjoyed the show, go ahead on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you're listening to the show, and leave a five-star rating and review. helps us reach more people and helps more people find out about the show. It's the number one way you can help us expand the podcast and keep things going so head on over to itunes take the three clicks leave a rating you know i appreciate it also if you want to stay in touch with everything happening on impossible beyond the podcast check out impossiblehq.com join where you can get on the newsletter and stay up to date with everything happening behind the scenes you can also follow me on social media at joel runyon on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow Impossible at Impossible HQ on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you guys want to pick up an Impossible shirt, remind yourself to do something impossible in the new year. Check out impossiblegear.com, the most comfortable gear to wear while you're pushing your limits and doing something impossible and pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone. So if you're going to have to push yourself outside your comfort zone, you might as well be wearing comfortable gear to do it. Impossiblegear.com, go pick one up. Today and remind yourself every day to push your limits. Also, movewellapp.com. If you guys pick that up during the interview, I just bought out my partner in MoveWell App, and we are going to be expanding MoveWell considerably over the next few months. We got a lot more routines, more movements, and more functionality to the app coming soon. So check it out at movewellapp.com. It's a free app to download. And you can subscribe for more premium routines if you're interested. But give it a shot. Check it out. 10 minutes of mobility a day. It's going to make you a better athlete. It's going to get you stronger. It's going to make you faster. And it's going to mean less pain on a day-to-day basis. So it's a no-brainer to help you out on a day-to-day basis. So check it out at movilapp.com. All right, guys. So that's it for today's show. I've got a new episode coming for you next week. Same time, same place. But until then, keep pushing your limits and do something impossible.